is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. This is our text. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, dear friends. Scandal. It certainly is a commodity that Americans find pleasure in, isn't it? The review, weekly, indeed daily, of scandal of one sort or the other. Perhaps it's always been that way. But it is certainly most evident in our day, and it's evident no matter if you're looking at the tabloids of a tabloid paper and the magazine as you're standing in line at a grocery store, or as you sit down and you watch cable news, it seems that cable news thrives 24-7 on the whole idea sometimes of scandal. And it certainly seems that the scandalized and the scandalizers have somewhat of a symbiotic relationship that's going on as well. It's sort of like you provide us with the scandal and we'll provide you with publicity and we'll both come out on top with it because after all, the American public truly enjoys scandal. And they're right. The American public does enjoy, it seems, scandal. We've developed a sense of sick tabloid mentality in our society, an overzealous fascination for information about the private lives of public figures. As one Frederick C. Edwards analyzes it and says, quote, the real or the supposed exploits of Actors and actresses of politicians and entertainers of athletes or business moguls appear in lurid headlines on papers and magazines that are more interested in sensation than in news. Photographers stalk the rich or the famous to catch an image of an unguarded moment. Fact blended with fiction becomes the means to enhance or discredit, to glorify or defame. And the popularity of this material, he says, in tabloid papers and magazines and talk shows indicates that the public seems to have an insatiable appetite for it all. He's right. Scandal draws attention to the scandalized, and especially if the scandalized are of the religious sort. If the scandal has to do with religious people and their families, then it is indeed a scandal, a real scandal of the most sordid sort, whether it's the Bakers or the Swaggerts or the Haggerts or the who knows who. As long as it's a religious sort, then it adds a certain dimension to the scandal because after all, then you have the meat of immorality that has the sauce of hypocrisy that's added to the scandal which makes it more tantalizing to all too many. Not that scandalization hasn't had a history, that it hasn't had a past, that it's anything new, it certainly isn't. It's been going on for a long time. In every age, in every time, there have been scandals that have been related, of course, to the church and to the religious. In fact, there's one time in history, one unique time in history when even God directed a scandal to accomplish some interesting and divine purposes. And that takes us to our text for today. And that takes us to the prophet of our text for today, Hosea. Back in the 8th century B.C., a prophet of God, a contemporary of two other prophets that you know well, Isaiah and Micah. 
And here's this interesting prophet Hosea, and you talk about a love scandal that took place. If there had been paparazzi back in those days, you can be sure that they would have been there on top of this thing, and this would have been the top news story of the time, the scandal of the day. Because here, in our Old Testament lesson for today, we have a prophet of God who goes out and he marries, of all things, a harlot. He marries a woman of the street, and how fitting her name. Her name is Gomer. And in the Old Testament Hebrew, the name Gomer means complete. And she was complete, all right. She was completely the opposite of what you'd expect the wife of a prophet to be. But that's who Gomer was, the kind of woman that you would never expect a prophet of God to marry, but he did. It's not that it had been a kept secret, a dark secret that she kept from him, and then he married her innocently, unknowingly. No, he knew. Hosea knew from the outset what kind of a woman she was. He knew that she was a prostitute, that she was a woman of the streets, that she was a harlot. In fact, some Old Testament scholars even suggest that she was a temple prostitute that worked in one of the infamous pagan temples in the area of the time in Hosea's day back in about 750 B.C. Whatever Gomer's situation had been, it appears too that even after she married the prophet, her marriage to a prophet had done little at all to change her lifestyle. She persisted in it. In fact, Scripture tells us that after she had been married to Hosea for a time, she leaves him with her three children, and she falls back into that life-destructive style all over again, and she falls hard. In fact, she falls so hard that, I, that, that Hosea has to go out and he has to buy her off the public auction block. He has to buy her back unto himself again because she'd sold herself off to others. And so he goes out and he buys her back. He bought her back and he brought her home and he sought to love her back to himself all over again. Now tell me why in the world would a prophet of God like Hosea ever marry a pagan prostitute in the first place? We teach our children better than that. We, even in our day, with its flippancy towards so many things, still teach our children to look for someone that you would share values with, that you'd have common interests with, that you would have common principles with, that they'd be like-minded with you in your faith and your convictions. That's the kind of spouse that you want to find. But here we have a man of God, a prophet of God, who takes to himself a wife who is so radically different from himself. And it's not that she had once been that way and then repented and changed and had become. You know, that happens too at times where people will be of this type over here, but then by God's grace they'll repent and they'll change and they'll become closer to what we by God's grace also are. It's not that that had happened. No, even, even as he takes her as his wife, she remains what she had been. So why does he do it? Scripture tells us why. Hosea, the prophet of God, took to himself a wife of whoredom because that's exactly what God had commanded Hosea to do. And the Lord said unto Hosea, Go, take to thyself a wife of harlotry, and have children of harlotry, 
For the land commits flagrant harlotry, forsaking the Lord. You see, Hosea's matrimonial experience was supposed to be a reenactment of God's experience with his chosen people. Just as Hosea had chosen Gomer and had loved her despite herself and all that she was and all that she had been, so God had chosen Israel despite what it was and its sinfulness. And he had committed himself as a husband would to a wife. He had committed himself to Israel despite all that she had been. And he loved her and all that she was. And just as Gomer had forsaken her loving and her forgiving husband and had taken out after others, so also Israel had forsaken its loving husband, the Lord God himself, its divine spouse, and had forsaken him and had gone out after others. What a powerful object lesson. What a powerful object lesson the Lord created here. Who in all of Israel could behold the troubled life of this public prophet of God and not see in his life with Gomer the vivid reenactment and picture of Israel's life with God and of their individual life with the God who also had loved them and saved them. I wonder how many times in the course of this repeatedly compromised relationship that Hosea must have thought to himself, sickened in his stomach, oh, Gomer, 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 what am I going to do with you? I've loved you so much, and yet you have been so unfaithful to me. And I wonder how often our Lord must have thought to himself what he said in today's text. Remember what he said? What am I going to do with you, Ephraim? What am I going to do with you, Judah? Your love for me, he said, is like a morning mist and like an early dew that when the sun comes up, it suddenly disappears. What am I going to do with you? And I wonder, dear friends, lest we think that this is only an 8th century B.C. situation, I wonder how often our Lord God looks upon us sinners, even in our time and on our day, and he looks at our broken lives wherein we've inflicted so much hurt and so much pain and so much harm upon one another or ourselves, as husbands and wives and parents and children, friends, mere acquaintances, where we have been so complacent in our attitude towards sins, though we sin and it means little or makes any difference, and so often so ungrateful for the multitude of blessings, both physical and spiritual, that God showers upon us day in and day out, as undeserving as we surely are, and how quick we are to make excuses for not doing the very things that we know that we should do, and how forgetful we are of doing the things that we should do, how quick we are to forget about repenting for the sins that we've committed. I wonder how often the Lord has looked upon us in our sinfulness and he has said those very words of us, what in the world am I going to do with you? How is God in his holiness to deal with us in our resistance? 
to his good toward us, to his love toward us? How is God in his righteousness to deal with our rejection of his love? How is he to react to our infidelity? How is he to react to our unfaithfulness? Would you want him to react in the same way that so many of us so often react with one another? You know, we sin against one another in one way or the other, and what do we do? We resent the fact that we've been harmed or hurt or sinned against. Is that the way that we would have God react to us? Resentment? You know, you do an etymological study of the word resentment, and it's an interesting word because really what resentment means is to relive something, to bring it up, a re-sentiment, a re-feeling. I'm going to feel it over and over again. It's not that we've been hurt once and then forget it and cast it behind us because we've forgiven someone. No, I'm going to resent it. I'm going to re-sentiment it. I'm going to relive it again and again and again. Because that gives us power over the one who has done us wrong. To feel again and again that kind of resentment. It's sort of like burying the hatchet, which we say we will do, but then we leave the, the handle of the hatchet as the old hatchet goes sticking up out of the ground so that we can conveniently go back to it and grab it whenever we need to swing again. That's how a lot of people with, deal with those who have committed them wrongs. They resent them. They feel the hurt or the wrong over and over and over again, and they relive it over and over again until the relationship with the one who has committed that wrong against them is all but destroyed. Thank God, though, that he is so unlike us in that regard. Thank God that he doesn't resent us in our sinfulness forever, that he doesn't remember and relive and relive and relive and feel again and again and again the sins that we have committed against him. What does scripture say? Thou, O Lord, the prophet Isaiah says, a contemporary of Hosea, Thou, O Lord, he says, hast cast all my sins behind thy back. That's where our sinfulness is to the Lord, behind him. Through that very same prophet, the Lord himself says, Yea, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions. For my own name's sake, I will remember, he says, your sins no more. He has not dealt with us, he says, according to our sins, the psalmist writes, nor hath he rewarded us according to our iniquities, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us, just as a father has compassion upon his children, so the Lord also will have compassion upon those who love him. And so also with Hosea. The Lord is portrayed as a loving husband who will not allow the sins of his wife to destroy his love for her. He's pictured by Hosea as a loving father who's not going to easily give up on his children, his wayward children. Thus in the 11th chapter of Hosea we read these words, when Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son, and the more I called, the more they went from me. And yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk, and it was I who took them up into my arms. So you see, when the Lord says, what am I going to do with you? He's not asking for your advice. He's asking it rhetorically. It's a question that springs indeed from the heart of the Lord himself. 
when he takes our sins upon himself upon the cross and he sees how resistant we are to his reforming grace he still loves us despite that and rather than giving up on us in frustration as we are so inclined to do with each other do you know what god did he changes the question from what am i going to do with you and he changes it to this important question what am i going to do for you and that's what he did for you the rest of it is all salvation history. It's not, what am I going to do with you, but it's, what am I going to do for you? And you know what he's done. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Scripture says. While we were enemies, we were reconciled unto God through the death of his own son. You know, interestingly, the name Hosea, means help. The name Hosea means deliverance and has not Jesus Christ been our help? Has he not been our eternal deliverance? Has he not indeed been our Hosea? It comes from the same root word as does the word Hosanna. Help us, deliver us, save us, O Lord, we pray. And Jesus Christ did just that. He, St. Paul says, gave himself up for our sins that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He has loved us. His love is undeserved, to be sure. And his love is, to be sure, inexhaustible. Herein is love, St. John writes. Not that we love God, as though it's something we could do, but herein is love that he has loved us and he has sent his own son to be the propitiation for our sins. The incomparable love of God. And as we reflect that incomparable love of God and we see it so vivid and evident in our Lord Jesus Christ, that's where it's displayed in its most vivid colors, in its most realistic way, and yes, also in its most scandalous way. Coming full circle and returning to scandal again, what is it that sets Christianity apart from all else and every other religion in the world? The scandal of the cross. That God becomes man and gives himself up for the sins of mankind. Love which is made known through what St. Paul calls the scandal of the cross, death by crucifixion the cross has always been a scandalous symbol of our faith and especially a cross with a corpus on it the body on it that's why there are those churches in our day and some of the mega churches of our times in which you would not find a cross especially one with a corpus or a body on it why not because they say it's too offensive it's an obstacle to people coming in to see a man on a cross but that's the centrality of everything that we believe in. That's the good news of what we have. An obstacle, some would say, to be removed from our midst, or at least to be architecturally blended into the surrounding structure and the walls so that the figure is diminished and that it's minimized. No, we would hold it up before all the world to see. Because it's not the power of positive thinking, it's not happiness and the wealth gospel that we preach. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am determined, St. Paul said, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. 
Indeed, Paul said, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The burning passion of the apostle of God, of the apostle Paul, who wrote today's epistle lesson was the cross of Christ crucified because nowhere else is the scandal of God's love for the unlovely sinner, and that includes you and me, nowhere else is it more evident than on the occupied cross whereupon God hangs his own son for your sin and for the sin of the whole world. There's a great poem with which I would end by George MacLeod that speaks to this very need for the centrality of the cross to find its way into the public marketplace again, not by legally mandating its presence there because it's part of our national heritage, not that way, but rather by finding its way back into the public marketplace and square again, how? As it's worn by God's people. As it's born by God's people, as it's spoken of by God's Christ-centered and cross-focused Christians who see the cross and our Lord Jesus Christ upon its suffering for mankind as the precious symbol of God's scandalous love for us. Here's the appeal that McLeod made over 20 years ago. He said, I simply argue that the cross be raised again at the center of the marketplace, as well as on the steeple of the church. And here's my claim, he says, Jesus was not crucified in the cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on a town garbage heap, at a crossroad of politics so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew and in Latin and in Greek, and at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gambled because that is where he died and that is what he died about and that's who he died for and that's where Christ's men in our day ought to be bringing the cross of God's love out there from here out there into the world Gomer's children dear friends are out there we were once of them but by God's grace, we're not called the sons and the daughters of God. And it happened because of the scandal of Christ on the cross. And that scandal of his love will not be concealed within our hearts. It must be indeed confessed by our lips so that those with whom we walk for a while in this world will also know him to whom we belong in this world him to whom we belong also in the world to come. God grant us that in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit.